the United Methodist People podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller, episode number 13, featuring a conversation with Rev. Dr. Mark Holland from MainstreamUMC.com, talking about gut check time for the UMC. Hi, this is Rev. Jerry Reardon, lead pastor at Noblesville First United Methodist Church in Noblesville, Indiana, and you're strengthening the connection with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller on the United Methodist People podcast. Welcome to the United Methodist People podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. Hello, my good friend and colleague and fellow traveler in mission and ministry. Welcome to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. That's me. Uh, On a regular basis, we come to you with a message to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church for the purpose of accomplishing our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Thanks for joining me today. We've got a really special episode. We'll be telling you about it in a minute with Reverend Dr. Mark Holland from Mainstream UMC to be with us. We did want you to know that we are here to serve you and to serve the church to help strengthen the connection in the UMC. And we believe that there is there can be unity, there can be strength when we come together and voice a, for the common knowledge or the common will of doing the bidding of Jesus Christ in this in this world. That's why we're here. I'm a local church pastor and elder for many years in Indiana, but also have a background in radio and the last several years in podcasting. I want to share this good news with you. Well, you can always get connected and find out more about the United Methodist People podcast by going to our website, unitedmethodistpodcast.com. That's where you can Get on our newsletter list and also get a free download of a resource called The Wesleyan Way that I think that you'll enjoy. And that's how you get updated on what's going on with upcoming episodes of the United Methodist People podcast. If you like what you hear, I would really appreciate it if you go over to iTunes and there find the podcast, United Methodist People podcast, with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. And there, subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating, five stars if you think we deserve it, and a review, just a line or two in the field there. That's the kind of thing that helps other people find us. You can help other people find us as well, if you so choose, by just sharing the good news about the United Methodist People podcast through your social media outlets or, or personally in any way that you can. Glad you're here today as we continue to share the good news about what's happening in the United Methodist Church and also deal with the things that are difficult to deal with. We know that we have challenging times in our church in relationship to how we're accomplishing our mission of making disciples for Jesus Christ with the transformation of the world. Many of our churches are struggling. We have uh, some times that are, that are challenging. Of course, the way forward, dealing with issues of human sexuality and the General Conference in 2019 is, uh, is ways... Uh, on the minds of many of us in the church. But we're here to say something about that through conversation and commentary. Today we have a conversation with Reverend Dr. Mark Holland. He is the director of MainstreamUMC.com, which is an advocacy group for the one church plan. You know that we have basically three plans are going to general conference uh, one's called the Connectional Plan, one's called the Traditional Plan, and there's the One Church Plan, which Reverend Mark Holland is um, is an advocate of. He is, you know, I thought I was a die-in-the-wool United Methodist person. Uh, Reverend Dr. Mark Holland 
is a third generation United, United Methodist pastor. His grandfather and father, both uh, clergy people. He was uh, baptized in United Methodist Church. He got his third grade Bible United Methodist Church. He was called into ministry at an annual conference as a youth delegate to his annual conference. Uh, he went to United Methodist uh, colleges and seminary, and he has been serving in United Methodist churches for uh, 22 for 22 years, 19 of those years, at Trinity United Methodist Church in Kansas City, Kansas. He also has this rather unique distinction of serving concurrently with his pastorate at Trinity UMC in uh, Kansas City, Kansas. He also was the mayor of Kansas City, Kansas. And so he brings a kind of a unique uh, set of skills to some of the uh, issues we are dealing with in our church. He also was the person who, at the 2016 General Conference, who made the motion for the bishops to move forward with the way forward, to provide a report that's going to be received at the 2019 called General Conference. He's the one who made that motion. He's passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's also passionate about the United Methodist Church. You're going to love this conversation where we go in-depth about lots of things. Let's check in now with our conversation with Reverend Dr. Mark Holland from MainstreamUMC.com. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller back with you on the United Methodist People podcast, where it is our mission to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And today we have a wonderful guest with us today to engage in conversation and commentary about some of the important matters of our church, particularly the way forward. He is Reverend Dr. Mark Holland from the Great Plains Annual Conference. He's serving right now in a, uh, a sabbatical leave with an organization called Mainstream United Methodist, Mainstream UMC, which is an organization that's been formed to be an advocate group for uh, having to do with the way forward. And we'll talk about some more about that in a, mission, in a minute or two. He's been a pastor in the Great Plains Annual Conference for some 22 years and also has uh, served as the mayor of Kansas City, Kansas, just leaving that office in January of this year. And we welcome to United Methodist People Podcast, Reverend Dr. Mark Holland. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you being with us. And there's uh, some important matters in the life of the church that uh, we're going to be discussing here today. But really, I always like to start off my conversations with uh, folks who have been serving our church uh, as clergy and other leaders in the church by getting uh, really the foundation of your faith. Uh, tell us a bit about your faith journey, how you came to to know Christ in the first place, and then your uh, pathway that led you into the local church and kind of the unique pathway, I believe, of uh, being a, a mayor and a uh, pastor at the same time, and then eventually where you're at now with uh, Mainstream. Could you just tell us your story a little bit? Sure. Well, I'm a um, third-generation United Methodist pastor, um, notably in these times that those three generations have been in three different denominational structures. My great-grandfather was M.E. South, and my father was Methodist Episcopal. Now I'm United Methodist. Three different generations, all in Kansas. My great-grandfather actually was in Arkansas, Missouri, and then in Kansas. But my dad spent his whole career in what was then the Kansas and Kansas East Conference, and I've been in Kansas East and now Great Plains. So I grew up in a parsonage, a number of parsonages, moved a lot. I was born at a Methodist hospital, received my baptism at London Heights Methodist Church, and my third grade Bible at Grandview Methodist, United Methodist Church, and my confirmation at Countryside United Methodist Church, and was, sponsor, was sponsored for ordination by Lenexa United Methodist Church. So we heard the call to ministry in high school. It's in your blood, isn't it? Yes. It's in my blood, um, which makes this whole conversation about what's happening in the denomination uh, very personal, which I think is true for many. I'm very personal. Heard the call to ministry in high school. Of, at annual conference of all unlikely places, I would say more people lose their religion at annual conference than hear a calling to Christ. <laughs> um, I, I, I've been to a lot of annual conferences, as Paul and Sam. But um, I heard the call to ministry as a youth delegate to the Kansas East Annual Conference. And um, went to college, went to SMU in Dallas, and then went to Islas for my master's and did my doctorate at St. Paul. So I've covered all the Methodist schools in the region. Came back home in 1996 and took a, two small churches in rural Kansas, Joaquin and Elwood, and had great a great experience there. And then I came back to Kansas City, Kansas, where I was born, 
and I've served the last 19 years at Trinity United Methodist. I just stepped down from that in May, so I decided um, after ending my time as mayor, and I needed to do something different, and so I needed uh, some time to discern what I was going to do, so I took this year outside of the appointment system to do some discerning, and while I was doing that, there's a obviously very concerned about the one church plan passing and needing it to pass and decided that I would focus my year outside the local church working full-time on passing the one church plan. To that end, co-founded Mainstream UMC with my friend, Reverend Dr. Nanette Roberts. She's the pastor at Olathe Grace United Methodist. Grace United Methodist is actually hosting Mainstream. Their ad council voted to make Mainstream a ministry of the church. So we don't need another 501c3. Um, They're handling all the financial accountability, income, and expenses, um, which is great. Uh, But anyway, so we just started the organization. So that's kind of where I I came through. Came through the church was kind of a – I consider myself a a, a crockpot Methodist rather than a rather than a microwave Methodist. Um, I've just been cooking in it my whole life. Well, that's uh, that's awesome in so many ways, and we'll get into deep and all the Methodist stuff in a minute. But I I just got to ask. I'm a little bit curious how it worked out for you to be mayor of a significant city and a United Methodist pastor concurrently. Uh, how'd that work out for you? Eleven years ago, probably, and wanting to be more involved in the community. Um, I had a num- I knew a number of United Methodist pastors who had um, served on the school board. There's a colleague who was serving on the school board in Wichita. The mayor in Kansas City, Missouri, the former mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, is um, the legendary Emmanuel Cleaver II, who went on to, is now currently the congressman from Kansas City, Missouri. He um, is the United Methodist pastor. And so there were just some role models around, and I thought, well, I wanted to get more involved. And part of the fate of being a pastors, you end up on a lot of not-for-profit boards. And so I was on a bunch of not-for-profit boards. And so I had a negotiated settlement with my wife that if I ran for commissioner, which is city council, that I would drop off all the other boards and just do that, um, even though it required one more night a week away. So I did. So I ran, and I had no idea what I was doing. I ran for office, talked around to a lot of folks in the community. I'd been in the community eight years at that point and asked a lot of folks, thought it was a good use of my time, if you could make a difference, and asked about school board, asked, and they said, well, why don't you run for city council? And asked where I lived and thought that that was a, the person who had that office, maybe we could do a little better. I didn't even know the person I ran against, but I ran. I do now, but I didn't then. Ran and won by 35 votes out of 13,000 cash, called a mandate. That's awesome. So I won barely and had a good experience for four years, and it, it was, you know, it's about 10 hours a week. And I remember talking to the bishop because I had to ask the bishop permission to run. And, you know, of course, I had to talk to my wife, bishop, and then the church, kind of get clearance from everyone. We're not allowed to have another job. City council has a stipend that goes with it. And the bishop said, well, no, of course, you can't have a stipend while you're in ministry, so you'll have to refuse that. And then he said, well, how much is it? I said, well, it's $1,000 a month. <laughs> he laughed. He said, okay, you can keep the stipend. So that's not going to that's not going to hurt anybody's feelings. So I, I did that, and I was full-time at the church and part-time at the city, you know, 10 hours a week. Um, and our budget was in the summer, which is a busy time at the city, so it went about 15, 20 hours a week, but a quieter time at the church because good United Methodists um, kind of take the summer off. Not The pastors don't, but it seems like everybody else does. Did that for six years, and then my friend who was the current mayor decided not to run for a third term, which we were all surprised by. And he encouraged me to run. The big issue with that was a vocational issue because I would be full-time at the city and would need to go back to quarter time. So, again, talked to my wife about it, talked to the bishop about it, district superintendent, and Mm -hmm. kind of navigated that and decided that I would give it a try. And if elected, then my appointment would go – I think we made it officially halftime. But my my appointment would go at halftime, and we would work out a staffing arrangement at the church. I ran and uh, won. I had been reelected as commissioner, so I'd been six years then in commission. Yeah, I actually won by over a thousand. So I actually, uh, and then the mayor's race, I won. And then I went time and my father, who's retired, he and my mom were attending my church. So I enlisted him and he came in and helped with the pastoral care and the administration. And then we had a student and an associate and a couple of retired pastors. So we had a whole kind of team around that. And then I preached and did fundraising and vision cast. That was my role. It was great. It was exhausting, but it was great. Well, that sounds awesome. Well, and then I, I got a feeling that this kind of unique skill set that you have within the political world and government, of course, the local church, may be serving you well in some of the things you're involved with now and organizing. And, and we have to face it, there is, you know, some political nature in what we do in, in the church. But it has implications that we in the church 
have to be engaged with our communities. And being mayor of a community, you're obviously engaged with the community, and the church has to be engaged as well. But I'm also interested in your take on how well we as the United Methodist Church are doing in our engagement. I'm particularly talking about, we have a mission statement, don't we, that says we are called to be making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And Mark, I just kind of like your take on how we're doing with that. Give me your grade. Give me your assessment about how we are accomplishing our mission. You know, it's a great question, and it's it's an interesting question because if you look at straight statistic and you look at population of cities uh, and you look at a total United Methodist attendance, if you took all the churches in Kansas City, Kansas, and took their total attendance and divided it by the population of the city and did that for each city to see kind of what is the United Methodist reach by population in each city, you know, I think our percentages range from 2 to 5% of our communities where we're making you know, where we have a foot, what our footprint is, if you will. Statistically, that's going down. I mean, the number, the percentage of United Methodist vis-a-vis the population of our city is going down. There are many, and I think it's a case-by-case example of churches, many churches are making a tremendous impact on their community and those who are the least, the last, and the lost. There are probably some churches not engaged in the community, not doing outreach, kind of focusing inward. I would say it's a case-by-case. I do know some great churches that are doing great ministry, and there's some churches that are struggling. One of the things that happens when a church starts to struggle and we start to get upside down with our building and we have the majority of our income going to pastor salaries and to the building, you start to cut. The first thing that gets cut is, you know, mission and then evangelism and then you know, you start cutting the key programs that make the church vibrant in the community to a point where many of our churches are struggling with just keeping the doors open, which is a which is a really tough fate of and I don't think that's what we're called to do. I don't think we're to keep the doors open. Our, my former bishop used to say the church is well positioned in the unlikely event the nineteen fifties come back. That's right. We've got the we've got the pew space, we've got the parking lot, we've got it all. And it's about those vital ministries. So I would say there is part of my passion for the church is to navigate a church by choice because for the last couple generations and my dad you know when my dad came into the ministry in 1965 you know the church was roaring and then it's been declining since and i try to tell my dad i don't think it's entirely his fault that the entire denomination has been declining since he was ordained but it's just it's just coincidental (laughs) i'm sure i'm sure he's i'm sure he's i'm sure he's glad to hear that i'm a preacher's kid too my dad's deceased but he was in ministry for uh, many years and uh bemoaned the decline of the church and that's right all that good stuff to, but uh, yeah, I think the part of my passion for the church is to is to rediscover what it means to be a church by choice, and I think a church by choice is a better institution than a church that's required. You know, back in the fifties, everybody went to church, and you had to you had to go to church or else. It was based on ob- kind of obligation and guilt, and that's how you. Uh major contact socially and business and otherwise. It was just what you did, right? And that era, that era certainly in the United States and in most of the United States, is largely gone. And so now we have we have to retool for what is a meaningful faith today. How does a church stay focused on making disciples of people, uh, growing our faith, reaching out to those who do not know the faith, bringing people into the faith? How do we stay focused on those things and not just focus on the institution for the institution. That's going to take all of us. That's what you mean by church by choice is to... We're not threatening hell if you don't go to church. You're not going to be ostracized in the community if you don't go to church. But what does it mean to invite, to be an inviting community, to be living a, a living faith that people see it and say, I want to be a part of that, even at some cost rather than... And when you talk about a church by choice, it certainly has... We are impacted by the decisions that are before us as we have it an impasse in our church and on the matters of human sexuality. And it it goes back, and where I want to circle back to you eventually, is this matter of our mission statement, if we truly believe our mission statement of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. How does the decisions we make now have implications, what you're terming a church by choice, or even by accomplishing our mission? And so we're at this impasse, this place now, aren't we? Can you just kind of define for us, from your perspective, what the impasse is, how we've been kind of stuck for many years here, and then what you did at General Conference uh, last time around? I've been on the delegation from Kansas East or Great Plains, either as a jurisdictional or a General Conference delegate since 2000. I've been to five General Conferences, and I've seen the 
the struggle around the issue of human sexuality, really the kind of difficult place that we are because we have people, people, Christians of good faith fundamentally disagree with the interpretation of Scripture. Both love the Bible, both love the Lord, both believe that the, the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and really disagree on the interpretation about whether the issue around homosexuality is descriptive truth for them then, and what is prescriptive truth prescribed for us to continue to move forward. Disagreement has been painfully playing out at the general conference level for the last 20 years, and there's and also the unique situation in our denomination where we have a large number of delegates um, from outside the United States. And many have identified this, that if this were a U.S.-only vote, the stance probably would have changed 12 years ago at General Conference, similar to when the Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, UCC, et cetera, made that change. And so we just have a, we have a unique situation in the United States where the acceptance of gay and lesbian people has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. And I think it has to be said before we go too far here that they're growing primarily in those places outside the United States. Is that fair? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. That you're And you're seeing that in all the mainline churches. I mean, the Catholic Church, Lutheran, I mean, all the major churches in the developing world, if you will, are booming, just as the church was booming in our country when it was developing. So, yeah, so there is a, there is this dynamic that the church is growing outside the United States. It tends to have a more conservative worldview. And around the issue of homosexuality, there are places in Africa where it's illegal to be gay. It's also, in some places, still punishable by death. So when we're talking about acceptance of gay and lesbian pastors and weddings, I mean, we're talking about a whole other world. Literally life and death issues for some folks. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The disconnect in the, in the experiences of the delegates is dramatic. We've just seen this play out again and again and again over the last 20 years. And in 2016, it just felt like the, the denomination was headed towards a split. You know, we all have chipped I, – I use this analogy all the time. We all have chipped dinner plates. When you have a chipped dinner plate, when the guests come over, you just kind of rotate it to the back so they, nobody can see it. But if a dinner plate hits the ground and shatters, you just have to sweep it up and throw it away. It felt like that our denomination may be heading for shattering, not just chipping. So I stood up at the 2016 General Conference and made a motion after lunch, and I don't know if you remember this. The scene before lunch that day, I think it was a Tuesday, everyone was anticipating the Council of Bishops were going to make a, we're going to deliver a message. We're going to speak to the General Conference. And there was a lot of uh, anticipation about that. They spoke to the General Conference. Uh, Bishop O gave a very nice message, but it didn't address how to move forward. It didn't address how to get us out of the ick that we were in. And so after lunch, during lunch, spoke with several colleagues on the delegation and said, I think I'm going to make a motion to ask the bishops to come up with a plan to lead us forward. I mean, let's get our best and brightest working on this. And so I did. I made the motion, and it was seconded, and it passed, but it barely passed um, by 25 votes. I'm You're good at that uh, nail-biter vote-getting, aren't you? My goodness. Well, <laughs> I guess. It's your spiritual gift, I guess. It must be. It must be. Um, hopefully it carries one more general conference. Bishops, you know, and it's our doctrine, you know, the bishops are not accountable to the general conference or vice versa. So it had to be an invitation by the general conference. The bishops had to agree, make a proposal, and then the general conference had to accept the proposal. And so the bishops agreed that they would bring a proposal. First time they've ever been asked by general conference to bring a proposal. They agreed to do it. And I'm telling you, it takes, it takes some courage from the bishops to wade into the thorniest issue in the church, the most divisive issue in the church, and to in some ways really put their own leadership and credibility on the line for what many would describe as a no-win situation. And so for the bishops to come back, and they knew what was at stake, and for the bishops to come back and say, you know what, the general conference has asked us, we're going we're gonna to take it on. And I thought that was, that was very courageous for the bishops to agree. And then the recommendation had to be voted on by the general conference, and it barely passed by another, again, by 25 votes. You have these kind of an ambivalent general conference requesting the bishops to lead and ambivalently accepting their leadership. It just speaks to how divided the church is. And so then the, um, you know, their recommendation was table all the legislation on human sexuality. We'll do a two-year commission, and we'll call a special session of general conference all of which they've done, and we are now with the recommendation. We're approaching that now. We've received the reports from the bishops and from the commission on the way forward uh, just recently, and uh, we're recording this in September of 2018, and here we are. I'd like to update us up to speed on the 
your understanding of the report from the commission on the way forward and how that evolved into three different options, basically recommendations in your take of the one that you advocate. It's interesting. The commission on the way forward was very representative of our church. I mean, these were 32 people. They were very conservative people, very liberal people, um, a lot of centrists. It was a, no one can say that they weren't represented. It was a global group, very well thoughtfully done by the bishops. Um, they brought the right people together. They decided early on they were not going to do a liberal proposal or a conservative proposal. They were going to do a one-church proposal. They were going to do a church of proposal that brought everyone together. They didn't really talk that much about a liberal proposal. Um, they did talk a little bit about a traditional plan, um, but they discarded that months ago and said that that's not where they wanted to go. They were going to present two options to the church that created space but also created unity. And so they created the one-church plan, and they created the um, conf connectional conference plan. And bless its heart, I think it needs 16 constitutional amendments to pass. And if we're passing things, high bar. From my view, and I've read it, it is just extremely complex. I mean, they're all three of them are complex in their own way, but that one is uh, personally, I'm having a hard time getting my head around how that would work. Yeah, it seems it would be easier to form three new denominations than it would to implement that plan and maybe cost less money. So the Connectional Conference plan, I think, is dead on arrival. But, but I, don't, I, I think it was an effort to say, here's how we could have even more space in the one church plan. Well, they took, the one, they took those to the bishops. The bishops, nearly two-thirds of the bishops, voted to support the one church plan. The progressive bishops and centrist bishops all signed on to it. But there was a handful of conservative bishops that said, no, we need a traditional plan. And so they wrote it and gave it back to the commission for their report. And the commission says in the report, if you look at the heading of Appendix 3, it says, this is not the work of the commission on the way forward. This was written by a few bishops. We have added it into our appendix. And it was done pretty pretty late in the process, wasn't it? Yes, very late in the process. And it was not vetted by the commission on the way forward. It was simply handed back by a handful of bishops. Now, the irony of that is the report that calls for the most accountability doesn't even list the author. We don't even know which bishops wrote it. It's back in the report because a few bishops pushed it back in. So you have this unbalanced report now. You have a cent two centrist models, and you have one conservative model, and there's no progressive model as one of them. It's not like they gave us a left-center-right options. They gave us two center options. More conservative one was foisted upon the commission. And obviously I have a strong opinion about that because I think it's illegitimate that the traditional plan is coming forward as a report from the commission because it's not. Um, and it says it very clearly, this is not a report from the commission. Those are the three plans and how we, how we came to them. Um, they've all been published now and they're all being published and trotted out as their three equal plans. Um, but it's very clear that nearly two-thirds of the bishops support the, the one church plan. Which is what reason why you formed uh, Mainstream was to be an advocate for the one church plan. So tell yeah. us how that decision came about to form Mainstream and what was some of the impetus for that, some of the motivating factors for forming this advocacy group, and what are you seeking to accomplish? Well, Mainstream UMC was formed to fund staff and organize a global campaign to pass the One Church Plan. There are a couple of other organizations that are out working for the One Church Plan. I think the largest one is um, Uniting Methodists, which is doing great work and is an ally organization. My concern is that when I look at the pol inherently political process that we're in, we're in the legislative process. Paraphrase our Lord, where two or more are gathered, there will be politics also. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Where 864 are gathered, there will be all kinds of politics. Oh my gosh. And you look at the, you look at there are four organizations, more conservative organizations, you know, Institute for Religion and Democracy, Confessing Movement, uh, Good News Magazine, and the WCA, the Western Covenant Association. Right. Those four organizations list 27 staff members on their on their website. They have all committed to raising money and defeating the One Church Plan and to passing the traditional plan. So there are four organizations that have been longstanding advocacy groups that are very adept at organizing and fundraising who are putting all of their weight into defeating the One Church Plan and defeating the recommendation of bishops. And have been well, pretty well organized for some time as well. That's right. Yeah, longstanding. They have a history. They have a history. They have a history of um, organizing and they have a history of um, raising money. And so it felt like that there was there was no one raising money and there was no one putting boots on the ground hiring staff to run a campaign 
to try to support the One Church Fund. The thinking around mainstream was there needs to be somebody raising money and putting boots on the ground to do it. So um, I committed to working full-time at mainstream as a staff member. We've been raising money. We believe it's a um, quarter-million-dollar campaign uh, to try to pass it, to reach all the constituencies around the world. And so we started July 1 and have been uh, moving forward. But that's really the, the piece. If we're going to if we're going to get to 433 votes, and that's just a majority, we would much rather have a consensus, uh, a much larger majority. And so we're really – 433 is really the minimum. But we would like to have this church really reach, rally around our bishop's leadership and have a much a much higher percentage than, than just 51%. Mark, what are some of the ways that, the, that you are advocating for the One Church Plan? What are some of the practical things that you're doing? Uh, uh, is this some sort of uh, letters? Is it uh, publications? Is it conversations with uh, the voting member state general conference? What, what kind of things are you doing? Well, in a camp, the campaign principles are the same, whether I've done six capital campaigns at churches, um, I've done four political campaigns, and it's really about getting the message out. It's really about communicating and making sure all the delegates, all 864 delegates, hear um, both sides of the issue. I mean, one of the issues would be is if we go to general conference and people have only heard one side, um, then they're going to have kind of a one-sided opinion about where to go. And so the the campaign principle of just making sure everyone has all the information is really it. And I say, you know, I think politics is a neutral word. It doesn't have to be good or bad. Um, it can be both good and bad. But, you know, running a running a Christian messaging operation is really what we're doing. Um, we're not mm-hmm. interested in tearing people down. We're not interested in making stuff up. Um, I've seen that play out on the secular side. You know, that's not what we're about. But it is about informing the delegates. And so we're doing that through website, email. We're doing that through direct mail. And so we have we have really three goals. One is to reach the delegates. The second is to reach the wider church, because I just think the morale in our church is low right now, and people are feeling hopeless that nothing's going to happen. I think we really need to encourage the church and to show this growing environment of wanting unity, not unity for the sake of unity, for the sake of the institution, but the kind of deep, faithful unity in Christ where people who fundamentally disagree stay together for the good of the mission. That's the kind of unity that we're, that we're seeking. One of the things you mentioned a second ago was uh, how we're political, but not in the secular vein, and yet many people are aware and very cognizant of secular politics and how that works out. It can get nasty and volatile and, you know, really polarized and things like that. And I think there's a little bit of anxiety and perhaps even fear that political uh, aspects of the debate that we're in could become really polarized and could get uh, could get ugly. And we certainly hope not. But I, I would like for you to speak, if you would, for a minute, how maybe this is an opportunity for the church to teach the world as a whole, or and especially those involved with political things, that uh, there is a way to... Uh, disagree, even have, you know, significant disagreements over scripture and so on, and still uh, conference together in Christian love and be an example to the world. Do you think that's a possibility here that we have a mission that's even different and greater than coming up with a political decision? There's no question. And I think the, you know, our families model this. And, you know, I use this example all the time. You know, I tell people, and I say to Brad, I don't know what your Thanksgiving table looks like, but I know what mine does. And, <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh. Well, that's a whole other conversation for another, for another day, my friend. It's really complex really quickly in my family. So. See, that's and, – and you know what? We come together around the table with people we love and with whom we completely disagree on a whole number of things. Right. And yet we still love and care for one another because we're family. And it's one table. It's one table. It's one table. And the same thing is true in our churches. You know, I've served uh, three different congregations. And talking to my colleagues, I don't know of a church where everyone thinks exactly the same way about the issue of homosexuality. But people are serving at the food kitchen side by side. People are um, ushering side by side. People are worshiping and praising God side by side with fundamental disagreements about how we read the scriptures and what scriptures are descriptive and what scriptures are prescriptive. Our churches model it. And so if our churches and our, and our families can model this, why can't our denomination? model this kind of unity where, yes, we disagree. Yes, we're going to come together 
um, at annual conferences and general conference, and we're going to air those disagreements out. We all worship the Lord together, praise God together in worship. We're serving at the food kitchen together. We're serving um, in, in vacation Bible school together. And when a hurricane hits the Carolinas, UMCOR is there, and they're spending liberal money and conservative money, and people are shoulder to shoulder helping in re- disaster recovery in the name of Jesus Christ through the United Methodist. Yeah, when someone's being pulled out of a flood, uh, conditions in the Carolinas or, or a hungry person in wherever, we're not uh, often asking about their uh, uh, sexual orientation or their uh, racial background or their uh, whether they're immigrants or not. These type of things don't come into play when people are in crisis. Uh, so uh, that's all a factor here. And I think in many ways, what you're saying, many of our local churches have figured this out. You know, just learn to live and love together. And, and sometimes, yeah, it just means you don't talk about certain things. You get along. But uh, to some degree, I think that's what you're talking about, about the chip plate rather than the shattered plate uh, analogy that you used earlier. Uh, my, my concern or my thought here, though, uh, Mark, as we talk about this, kind of goes back to our original thing about how we're doing with our mission statement. I have questions about how the debate that we're under and how the implications of the decisions we as a church may have implications for how we reach more people for Christ, how we are in practical matters, how we are attractive to uh, to folks who uh, are out there who don't know the, don't know the Lord. What do you think are the implications of the decisions that we make in terms of the effectiveness and the impact of local churches as we look to evangelize the world for Christ? Well, and I think this is why it's so important. Um, I look, I use one of the foundational scriptures, and you'll find it on the website at mainstreamumc.com. One of the foundational scriptures for this work is Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, where uh, there was a disagreement about bringing new people into the church, and they were not being circumcised. They were not following the whole law of Moses. And there was a decision made that, you know, for folks in that mission area, um, there would be one set of rules, one interpretation of Scripture and tradition, and folks in Jerusalem would have a different one um, because the gospel of Jesus Christ was too important and, and was large enough to span those two in different interpretations. And I think the implications of the one church plan are implications where churches who are operating well under the current rules can continue to do so. And churches who are in different missions who are having gay and lesbian people turn away from the church because they don't want to be a part of the denomination. And we're not just losing gay and lesbian people. We're losing their allies and their families. And there are, for some churches, that's critically important to the mission field. And for other churches, it's not. And then, and so the one church plan allows the different regions to be relevant in their mission field. Um, this also has no impact on the, on the international church. The central conferences are not impacted at all by this vote. Um, they already have permission by the Book of Discipline to alter it for their mission field, um, permission that's not reciprocated to the U.S. churches. And so this one church plan codifies kind of what we're already doing and allows all the churches um, to reach their mission field with, a relevant, with relevant practice. And that's, I think, fundamental to what we're trying to reach, is um, giving permission for folks to be who they are and mm-hmm. for – if the church is conservative, be conservative. If the church is um, progressive, be progressive. But be the best you can be in your, in your community and make disciples for Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Sounds like it. I've heard it described by some others as a, a big tent approach here, and it sounds like that this gives us the opportunity to expand the tent – uh, perhaps even to stretch the analogy to have uh, kind of smaller tents within the big tent. Perhaps I'm I, I'm not sure if I, where I'm going with this analogy, but you, but I think the idea is to get you know be more accepting and more loving, more uh, more unified. Is that uh, what is the hope of the one church plan? That's my hope for it, and my hope is is that uh, and it's a compromise for everyone. And the the irony, and I you know I've heard it said that the one church plan has enough for everybody to hate. Um, <laughs> okay. Because both from both the left and the right, believe that the other side is committing a sin. You know, from the conservative side, allowing homosexuality and celebrating it, it's celebrating sin. From the progressive side, allowing the oppression of gay and lesbian people is a sin. And so you have two sides that believe the other one is committing a sin, and the one church plan says we're still the church, we're still making disciples for Jesus Christ, you practice faithfully in your mission setting. You practice faithfully in your mission setting, and we're going to continue to to grow the church. And that's a 
and, and it's going to be a gut check for everyone mm-hmm. to ask the question, am I willing to live in a family, in a church, in a denomination with people with whom I fundamentally disagree? Yeah, and where the pushback would be, of course, where not only fundamentally disagree, but believe that we are a church that has elements that are in the mind of some acting in sin. And that uh, I think that's the pushback that uh, some people would make based on their understanding of Scripture on either side of the issue, however it plays out. And so I guess that's what I want to ask you now. Just what's your gut telling you right now, Mark? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's your gut telling you about how things are going to play out in February of uh, 19? Um, I think the One Church Plan is gaining momentum. I think that there is a recognition that um, we are one of the last big tent denominations, that there is merit in that, and that there is an opportunity for us to witness to the world about what unity in Christ can look like, even with different interpretations of the Scripture. Um, you know, we broke over interpretation of Scripture around slavery. Um, the Scriptures make it very clear that slaves are to obey their masters, and slavery is acceptable. And before the Civil War, there was a split um, around that interpretation of Scripture. Um, there was a big debate about the interpretation of Scripture around women in ministry in 1956 when we ordained women. And people left the church and said, we're violating the scripture, and it's a sin to allow a woman to teach in the church. This is another issue where we have an interpretation around gay and lesbian people that some believe, still believe it's a sin and some believe it's not. And the question is, are we going to split over this? We have split over interpretation of scripture before, and are we going to split over interpretation of scripture again? Or are we going to say there are faithful Christians, there are faithful United Methodists who are doing their best, who fundamentally disagree on this issue. And um, it's worth the unity in Christ to stay together as a witness to the world. And the reality is you always lose people, no matter what you do. You know, if you do nothing, you're going to lose folks that way too. And the idea is if we can understand that some people would just, it's just not going to work for some people and perhaps some local congregations, whatever decisions are made. But I'm hearing you say if we can uh, understand that's kind of part of the part of the deal, part of the process, but not have a schism, that would be uh, certainly preferable to to the shattered plate uh, imagery. Yeah, and you look at the, look at all the global ministries and what happens to those denominations. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's you, just heartbreaking. The implications, the implications, not only in the evangelism area we were talking about, the implications, all those services, you know, mission projects and you know, hospitals and colleges and all you know, all kinds of agencies, uh, nursing homes and what yeah. have you, are all just profound, and that's just a part of the story. But having said all this, Mark, just a couple more things. What, given the tension we're under right now, given this state of the church that we've been discussing, which could be construed, you know, a little bit of a, you know, Debbie Downer a little bit or something. I, I hate to say that, but I still believe that uh, there's signs of hope in the church. And I would like to see if you have signs of hope for the church. And what, if so, what do you see as signs of hope in our church? You know, the sign of hope is people are getting engaged. People are taking the conversation seriously. People are people are passionate about the church and passionate about, you know, if, if nobody cared, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, if everyone said, ah, who cares what happened? You know, the fact that people are engaged and passionate about this, I think is a sign of hope. I think there's there's, we continue to be called as a church, our uniquely Wesleyan wit, the message that God's not changed chasing you with hellfire and brimstone. God's chasing you with grace, this provenient grace that pervades all aspects of our lives and the call to acknowledge it and to receive it and to live out of it. That uniquely Wesleyan calling is so powerful. And we also, the other sign of hope that I have is we're one of the churches that has an open table, an open ecclesiology, if you will, an understanding of the church. Uh, John Wesley believes that communion can be um, a means of grace, that by receiving communion, you can actually be saved. And we offer communion to everybody. You know, you don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to be um, a member of the denomination. But it's an open table. And that's something powerful that we offer open table for communion. Our sacraments are open. We have an open sacrament for baptism. Um, We accept all forms of baptism. And we've elevated marriage and ordination past the sacramental area. And so my sign of hope is, that we still have an at, at our core, the United Methodist Church is an open table. At our core, we are open to all people and even to people with whom we disagree. That's the greatest sign of hope that I have, and I think that ethos will ultimately carry the day. And that is what ultimately puts us positioned, I believe, better than most in Christendom 
reach the world right now. Be disciples to make disciples to transform the world. Yeah, I appreciate you being with us here today, Mark. If people want to know, learn more about Mainstream, how can they uh, be in contact with uh, with your organization or support you financially, or what kind of ways can they make connections with you? If folks would go out to the website at uh, MainstreamUMC.com, um, there's an opportunity to sign up where you can get on our mailing list. There's an opportunity to donate. Uh, the donations do go through Grace United Methodist Church in Olathe, Kansas. Um, they're all tax deductible through Grace. So there's a lot of opportunity, and then there's a, there's a lot of material on our website and our Facebook page. You can go to Mainstream UMC and on Facebook and on Twitter. There's just information out there uh, about what we're doing and how we are supporting the One Church Plan. And if you, if you want to sign up to support the One Church Plan, we'd love to have everyone support. It's going to take it's going to take the whole village to get us across the finish line. And we'll put all the details with everything you're describing in our show notes, which is at our website, UnitedMethodistPodcast.com. Our guest today on the United Methodist People podcast has been Reverend Dr. Mark Holland from the organization, which is uh, MainstreamUMC.com. Thank you, Mark. What an awesome conversation that we had with Reverend Dr. Mark Holland from Mainstream UMC, the advocacy group for the One Church Plan. Uh, we really went into some in-depth discussion there, and I hope that you got as much out of it as I did. just want to touch on a few bullet points for you to be aware of about our conversation that I think are takeaways that you can take with you. He, he talked about the analogy of uh, the dinner plate, the dinner plate, which can be chipped a little bit, and we can get by with that and perhaps even have dinner with that, even show guests our chipped dinner plate. But if we shatter the dinner plate into a million pieces, everything's ruined. And he used that as an analogy for where our church may be on the precipice of. And he used that analogy, and I thought it had some uh, was applicable in many ways. He also talked about the courage of our United Methodist bishops to take on the proposal for the way forward. And I hadn't thought about it too much that way, but he lifted up the courage of the bishops to take this on and to dig into this I issue and to deal with this, you know, this very dramatic issue of the way forward. He talked about the need to be, be the best that you can be, whatever you want to be, and how that's one of the, or whatever you choose to be as individual clergy, church members, and as local churches. That could, is open under the one church plan. That therefore a church under one church plan could be as conservative as they would like, or be pro progressive, but be the best that you can be to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the, for the transformation of the world. He talked about a church by choice, a church where people choose to be a part of it or are not a part of it out of obligation or guilt or anything like that, and how our Wesleyan theology is also very much open in many ways to the open table is uh, applicable to our culture right now in so many ways. He talked about how families and local churches in areas of disagreement are often can be a great model for the denomination to follow. In other words, in families, people disagree, maybe around the Thanksgiving table. And in churches, people can disagree over profound matters, including those of human sexuality, but they still choose to get along and sit around the same table. Why can't we do that as a denomination? He talked about growing an environment of unity, not for unity's sake or for the institution, but a unity of institution of deep unity in Jesus Christ where people stay together for the sake of the mission. Lots of good stuff there. But what, what uh, struck me was, was um, his admonition, his Mark Collins uh, statement, that this is gut check time. This is gut check time for the United Methodist Church are we willing to live in a family for whom we disagree, maybe even profoundly disagree, but still love the same Lord? Gut check time. Some interesting stuff there from Mark Holland, and you'll, you'll, we'll make uh, connections or, or we'll give you links to his site, MainstreamUMC.com, and other links in our show notes. We're glad you're here with us here today on the United Methodist People podcast. We're all about these kind of type of conversations, uh, that we go deep 
to go deep with people who are involved with various aspects of these issues, such as the way forward. We've uh, had several conversations in our uh, in our library of episodes at United Methodist People podcast, including with several bishops. I would just uh, encourage you to go over there, unitedmethodistpodcast.com, and check those out in our archives. You can also check out all of our uh, past episodes on iTunes. And on iTunes, if you care to, please go there and, and subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating and a review. Those are the type of things that help people uh, find the this podcast where we lift up uh, with conversation and commentary everything we can do to strengthen the United Methodist Church and we'd also appreciate also on our website United Methodist uh, people or United Methodist people podcast you can uh, get on our newsletter list and get a free download there It's good to be with you today. Great discussion today, and we'll be back with you soon enough with another episode of the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. I leave you with these thoughts from John Wesley. It's always good to state this. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash United Methodist Podcast. And always do all the good you can.